Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the LawCast. This week, we're taking a look at the dark days of WCW with Bash at the Beach 2000. Kyush, if you had to quickly sum up this show, how would you do it? I don't know that I could, because <laughs> this is the most madness I've ever seen packed into two and a half hours in my entire life. But if how I had... I just I reflect on... Last week, we did Bash at the Beach 98. And we thought it was a great show. It was one of the most successful pay-per-views in wrestling history to that point. This is only two years later, and it's remarkable, like, the lows to which this company has fallen in that time. Yeah, for reference, if you go back two years ago in WWE, it won't even really look different. <laughs> it's basically yeah. the same guys in the same venue with the same theatrics doing the same shit. Whereas this... The production looks 100% different. The people are completely changed. The gimmicks are preposterously different. Like, it doesn't even feel like the same world. No. Um, I mean, to put in context where we are, like, everything has collapsed by this point. Their ratings are down well into the twos from, you know, a couple of years before this, they were doing fives. Now they're doing twos. Their attendance is down to the point where, like, they're drawing... You know, barely a thousand people paid for their house shows. Um, they've gone from selling out arenas to having to dramatically paper them to even get the arenas half full. Their pay per views are barely breaking a hundred thousand buys. Um, by this point, it's not surprising that this company is going to be out of business soon. Like I remember, by two thousand, by the summer of two thousand, feeling like this company's probably going to be dead soon. Which is funny because, honestly, it would probably still have kept on existing for a number of years after this, despite how absolute garbage it was and how bad business was, if it wasn't for, obviously, the Time Warner merger. Like, yeah. let, let's say this. We're going to be saying a lot about Vince Russo today, but in, there are lots of criticism about Vince Russo that are entirely fair. But one that is not is you can't say that he killed WCW because he didn't. He helped. He, he helped it drive it into the ground. Dead. Yeah, but what killed it had nothing to do with anything about the actual product yeah. itself. I would say if Bischoff is able to pull off that purchase of WCW that he had arranged and they get to keep their time slots, if they still have Nitro on TNT, they might still be alive today. Like, I don't think that's unreasonable. Absolutely. And I, I'm yeah. just not sure that it... They, they even survived just long enough to get to this new TV market where they would be a hugely valuable commodity. But it also happens to be at just a time where they're not a hugely valuable commodity. Like a few years later, WWE Raw is going to go on the market and it's not going to get a lot of takers. Like yeah. the entire early thousands were just impossible yeah. to get any sort of wrestling programming on the air. Wrestling at this point. Like, yeah. The ratings, you, you, they had to be drawing super duper high ratings to make it worth it. Now, you know, TV's changed so much that the ratings they draw are a fraction of what they were, and they're hugely valuable for that. Let's say TNA is in two thousand and let's say three. TNA is much bigger than Ring of Honor is now. I feel comfortable saying that, and they were on like the F the Fox Sports Sunshine Network or some shit. They were on. They were buying time on Fox Sports, I think, too. Like they were not being paid for that. I think they were paying for that time slot. 
Meanwhile, Ring of Honor got bought by a television empire and is put on right after Saturday Night Live every week. <laughs> I mean, it, it's completely different situation. But like, like I said, there are a lot of criticisms that you can make, and we will argue why Vince Russo was absolutely the poison that Vince McMahon referred to the NWO potentially oh, yeah. being a couple a years lethal later. dose of poison. He a lethal dose of poison. That's amazing to say about Vince Russo is he did such a bad job running WCW that there are people who actually think that Vince McMahon sent him to WCW to kill it. And let's kind of get into what he changes he made. Yes. So, I mean, to recap, Bischoff gets fired by WCW like August, September 99. Like he's burned out. The company's falling apart. They just tell him, you know, Eric, go home. You're done. And he's perfectly fine to be out of there by that point. Um, the company appears to be in shambles. A couple weeks later, they pull off what seems to be a massive coup at the time by landing Vince Russo and Ed Ferrara. And these guys are, I mean, I'd say the most prized possessions. And I mean, not prized more so than Steve Austin or The Rock, but I'd say more prized than almost any wrestler in wrestling at this point are the two guys who have been writing TV for the WWF the previous couple years. Absolutely. The worst kept secret in all of professional wrestling at the time was that Vince Russo was the wonderkind who had yeah. Vince McMahon had ridden to the top. Yeah. So I remember, you know, reading about this and having only kind of a vague, I, I don't know if I had ever heard of Vince Russo before that, but you know, when I hear they signed the guys who have been writing WWF TV, I'm like, Holy shit. Like game on WCW's back. This feels like, one of the biggest things they could have done at this point. Probably, I mean, because re they can't reasonably get like Austin or Rock or any of the WBF's top stars at this point. This was the biggest thing they could have landed. And I mean, I think that's part of why it's so vilified what actually wound up happening. I mean, it deserves every inch of the vilification it got, but it's also because there must have been so much hope at the time for WCW fans yeah. to be like, oh shit, this is our second shot. Here we go. We got the guy who made WWE successful. We can compete again. Yeah. So what does he proceed to do? He really just proceeds to try to turn WWF in. It tries to turn WCW into WWF light, and it just doesn't work. Like he changes almost all the characters to be knockoffs of WWF guys. He does just tons and tons of swerves and crazy stuff. For its own sake, there doesn't seem to be any real direction to where things are going. You know, in his shoot interviews now, he'll always claim he had these those these long term plans. I refuse to believe that because when has Vince Russo ever displayed any long, even at his peak when he was doing well in the WWF, long term planning was not something he was doing or it was good at. No, he was great at creating dynamite angles. Yes, and like, but that that was his gift. Vince Russo is great at writing a segment, you know, a TV show, a quarter hour. He cannot string together a long-term story. It's something he's never done. And here's the thing. Like, everyone always talks about all of the ridiculous characters that he created, which, for good reason, they are fucking crazy, and we're going to get into a lot of those. But what really drives me crazy when I watch these shows is the tone of the show is so weird and so, like, uniquely his it's, it's like, not like just all, that, the, all the insider bullshit. 
Yeah, it's not just that, but like the announcing is just fucking scumbags who are like patting him on the back. Every segment just descends into weird chaos and not even like the structure kind of attitude era chaos where like everybody would jump and become an overbooked mess. It, it doesn't go anywhere. It like it's like he's using people who aren't qualified to be actors to try to act in like weird wrestling related segments. There's it doesn't feel like a pro wrestling show even when the matches are going on. Like he's just he transforms it into some kind of like weird avant-garde wrestling theater and it's just bizarre to watch. Yeah. So I mean they start doing all these work shoots at Halloween Havoc 99. Hogan lays down for Sting for their title match for some reason. I don't think they ever explained why that happened, but it was just a way to get the WCW title vacant because they wanted to do a tournament because Vince Russo loves tournaments. The tournament was really not a bad idea. There was something insane in there where champions were in the tournament, but they had to defend their titles in the championship matches. Yeah. So I think that, I think the way they got out of that was they did, they just started having the champions all get eliminated by disqualification or count out because they realized we can't have one guy win this tournament and win all of the titles by doing that. Yes. And that show is... Oh, God, it's so batshit insane. It's almost like Vince saying no more tournaments was like a chip on Vince Russo's shoulder where he's just like, well, guess what? Now I'm free. I'm doing all the fucking tournaments I want. Let's go. Yeah. Um, other stuff that happens. At Starcade. they redo the Montreal screw job. Uh, Bret Hart beats Goldberg because Roddy Piper calls for the bell even though Goldberg taps out, doesn't tap out. Piper explains they made me do it. They, of course, being the writers, I should note, Vince Russo is an unseen character on TV at this point. Like, we just see the can like the back of a chair, like um, the villain on Inspector Gadget. That's yeah. Russo at this point. He is, you know, the shadowy figure pulling all the strings behind the scenes. Just all this stupid work shoot stuff. Like Buff Bagwell gets told by his opponent that night that, oh, you know, I'm going to beat you in our match tonight. And then in the match, like, Bagwell refuses to cooperate and rolls up his opponent. And the announcer's like, uh, I don't think that's what was supposed to happen there. Uh, that wasn't in the format. Like, just, I don't know who the audience for this is supposed to be. Like, it, it completely overestimates the smart audience at the time. Yeah. And it's kind of funny because if they did shit like this now, it still wouldn't work, despite no, the fact that everyone. Suck, but people would kind of get it. Yeah, we would know what he was talking about, but it wouldn't be edgy because it's like, all right, well, we get it, but we're not watching to see. Like, we go online after the show to find this shit out. Like, just give us the kayfabe first. Like, there's yeah. no point in watching the show if you're just going to be like, oh, ho, ho, scripts and scripts. It's fake. So, a series of insane things then happen. Um, Bret Hart, of course, had that terrible concussion in the match against Goldberg at Starcade. He proceeded to re-aggravate it because they kept having him wrestle, including in hardcore matches. So he's getting hit with chairs and trash cans while he has a concussion. This leads to his retirement. He has to vacate the WCW title. Um, so they have to find a way to crown a new champion at their sold-out pay-per-view. Russo proposes to put the belt on Tank Abbott because it will swerve everybody. Uh, basically, the idea is they're going to do like a Royal Rumble match. 
Sid Vicious is going to enter early and eliminate everybody, survive the whole time. And then as Sid is exhausted, Tank Abbott will come out last and knock Sid out with a punch and become the WCW champion because nobody will ever see that coming, bro. Vince Russo is desperately obsessed with the idea of surprising people. I kind of understand where that comes from because WWE, and, and this includes in the modern era, make, WWE makes all of their money from those small moments where they surprise the fans, where they have that surprise re-debut, where they have that shocking twist in the middle of all the monotony of what normally goes on. That's where the money is. But the problem is, is that you have to have that monotony to make it surprising, yeah. right? I think you can explain a lot of this by the fact that it would get really boring writing wrestling. Like just every week we have to fill hours and hours with these matches and we kind of just do the same matches and promos over and over. The other thing is we're, we've reached this postmodern moment where everybody gets how wrestling is supposed to work. So everybody knows what's going to happen and it's predictable. So I feel like the WWF has become obsessed with Let's do the opposite of what people expect just because it's going to be something different. Like right. nobody expects that Jinder Mahal is going to win the WWE title. So let's have him win it. Or like they'll build up to their baby face finally winning the belt. And then they'll be like, ah, oh, let's just have him lose the big match because it would be predictable if he won it. And that's Russo disease. Yeah, it, it really is. And like they're suffering from it right now. And it's, it's, it's just like a desperate grasping for relevance. Like we want to be covered on Sports Center. We want people to be talking about us. Let's just do something shocking instead of engineering something interesting. So sold out 2000. Uh, there's a coup against Russo. He gets sent home over this Tank Abbott thing. Um, our old friend Kevin Sullivan is put in charge, and we've got another we've got another chapter in the Kevin Sullivan Chris Benoit saga. So. Benoit and his friends, you know, Eddie Guerrero, Shane Douglas, Saturn, Malenko, are not happy with the idea of Sullivan being in charge of creative again for understandable reasons. You know, Benoit, things have understandably been tense between him and Sullivan since Benoit had an affair with Sullivan's wife and he's now married to her. That, that, that will happen, yeah. <laughs> so... Sullivan's surprise first move is to put the world title on Benoit. Uh, what do you make of that? Sullivan maintains he was just doing it because he thought it was the right thing to do. He thought it would be good for morale. A lot of people have cast that as a defensive political move just to kind of keep Benoit and his friends happy. I mean, it might be a, a defensive move. It certainly didn't seem in the storylines at the time like they had any intention of putting it on Benoit. But at the same time, who's been a bigger champion of Chris Benoit WCW than Kevin Sullivan has? Very strangely, that is true. Let's say the only two times he ever tasted the main event were because of Kevin Sullivan. Yeah. So at Sold Out, Benoit beats Sid for the title, taps him out with the crippler crossface. There is a bit of a double cross here. Sullivan says he told Sid put your foot under the ropes so that we have an out. And turns out they need that out because Benoit asked for his release the next day, despite being the champion. Uh, they gave him his release. They gave 
uh, Benoit, Saturn, Guerrero, and Malenko, all of their releases. Um, Shane Douglas was interested in leaving too, but he had nowhere to go, so he ends up staying. Um, but in one swoop, WCW loses all of their mid-card workhorses. Oh, man. And it's, it's they bad. go directly it to the... It really WWE. felt like the beginning of the end. And it's completely understandable why. It's it's ridiculous to imagine that you put the world title on a guy and he wants to leave your company the next day. Yeah. Imagine how little that belt means. Yeah. So a bunch of stuff happens after that. Um, but anyway, Benoit, Malenko, Guerrero, Saturn show up on Raw a couple weeks later, make an awesome debut coming out of the crowd, beating up DX get a massive reaction. They do a huge rating for that segment. I've heard Bischoff tell this story before saying he was like in a bar eating dinner with his wife and like glancing up to see Raw on the TV. He hasn't been watching wrestling for a while at this point. He sees the Radicals make their debut and he turns to his wife. It's like, okay, they're going to call me soon. Like they're going to have to bring me back now. And they did. And indeed they did. I don't know if that story is true, but it's a good one in any case good story so they bring back bischoff eventually they bring back russo too like they think this is the dream team we've got bischoff and russo together you know the man who took on went toe-to-toe with vince mcmahon and beat him for 83 weeks and the man who was responsible for beating the man who beat vince mcmahon and now we've got them together and it's gonna be great it was not great. It's not great. Vince Russo and Eric Bischoff are such opposite human beings that I don't think you can't even. They're not even going to meet if you go all the way around are they the world. Because human beings, or they're the same human being. Much like how Vince Russo and Jim Cornette are basically just the same person from different zip codes, I think Eric Bischoff's also guilty of the same kind of thing. Yeah. So. The big show, it's, I believe, the April 4th, 2000 Nitro. This is the one that starts with, like, Russo and Bischoff embracing in the ring, which is a swerve because everybody assumed they were going to have them fight each other, which probably would have made more sense. But they proceed to strip all of the champions of their titles. We do a total company-wide reboot. All storylines are dropped. All champions are stripped of their titles. We are starting over fresh. This is also the segment where Bischoff drops a reference to Sid stabbing Arn Anderson, asking him, you know, where are your scissors, Sid? No one in the crowd understands this. No one in the crowd has any idea what he's talking about. That's like a decade old reference. <laughs> and like, just, it's not like, yeah, today, if one wrestler stabbed another with scissors, people would know about it. But we lived in a different world back then. Right. And just um, imagine like being in the crowd. Like, we'll get to this later, but like the poor assholes in the crowd at this show have no idea what's going on. So the company-wide reboot here is we've got all the young guys are a stable. They're the new blood. And all the legends, you know, Flair, Hogan, etc., are the millionaires club. Um, the new blood are the heels in this storyline. Does this make any sense to you? No. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it kind of does. Because all of the new blood are unlikable dicks. Yeah, they're a bunch of dickheads. Yeah, like nobody likes them. That's this is sort of why they probably just shouldn't have done this storyline. 
Because but... here's the thing, like they take all the likable young people and they put them in the filthy animals. And then they take all the unlikable ones and they put them in the new blood. And then they're kind of together, but they're not really. Because Conan and Ray are the only likable young people they have. And they're not even young. I mean, that's part of it. It's just like they've been so they've lost all the good up and coming talent by this point. Like they've lost Benoit, Jericho, Guerrero, Giant. Like what they've got left is mostly not great. They've still got Booker T. Unfortunately, he's GI bro at this point. That's the thing. He's not even the face of this. He's not even really involved. This is all built around like Buff Bagwell and Shane Douglas. Just vile. Just and by power stuff. plant guys, yeah. Yeah. And like, yeah, let's call up every asshole out of the power plant and put them on TV even though they don't know how to wrestle. It's despicable to watch like Chuck Palumbo and Sean O'Hare and Sean Stasiak. They have no business being yeah. in a ring at all. Yeah. Those guys are years away from being ready for TV. <laughs> in fact, none of them ever really amounted to anything, it turned out. No, I mean, they never really did. And it's easy to believe that if they had not all been pushed at the same time and exposed at the same time, maybe they would have resulted in something. They all had at least some potential. It's just that the way that they did it and the way that they just threw everybody into like the fucking saw blades to try to figure out if they had something, it destroyed them all. So like... A week or two after that insane Nitro, we have Spring Stampede 2000, which, as we referenced on a previous show, is the show that broke Q's reviews. <laughs> Q spent like a year trying to do a review of this show and just couldn't do it. I'm... This show features 14 matches, including tournaments for how many different belts? I believe three. Oh, my God. I think it's the TV title, the U. Oh no, it's the tag titles, the U.S. title, and the world title. Yeah, and then they just have a match for the hardcore title too. Yes, like I, I... and a and a six way match for the cruiserweight title. Like just they crown all new champions at the show, and none of it means nobody cares about any of this. I made it three fourths of the way through that review, and I had reviewed like thirty seven segments, and I was like, "This is not going to end. I give up. This is over." Fourteen matches on this show, and you can only imagine how many backstage segments because these matches are all like three minutes long. Yeah, that's the thing is you have multiple tournaments going on at the same time, and not one match gets more than five minutes. So, like, it's what's the point? Ugh. Um, it, we're going to gloss over somewhere in here. David Arquette wins the WCW title. We'll cover that another time. I don't oh, feel yes. like going into that right now. <laughs> That's a whole other thing. At Great American Bash 2000, Goldberg turns heel, joins up with Russo and Bischoff and the New Blood. Um, on this show, the newly heel Goldberg will face Kevin Nash in a Starcade '98 rematch. The stipulation being that. Scott Hall's contract is on the line. If Nash wins, like Hall can be brought back to WCW. If he loses, Hall is fired. Now, wasn't Hall pretty much already fired at this point? I feel like by this point, Scott Hall has shown up in ECW. I don't remember for sure the exact timeline, though. But that's just so weird, you know? It's just, you know, we're going to be reality-based. What do you make of Goldberg as a heel? I don't think it's the worst idea, but the, 
it's one of those where Goldberg didn't want to do it, and so he didn't embrace it. See, here's the thing. Once you've created somebody this unbeatable, it makes a lot of sense to make them a heel, because then you can build a baby face to beat them, right? Like, the organic way to turn him heel would have probably been after he wins the belt at Starcade or whatever. Yeah. And it's just like, well, fuck everybody. Yeah. I own have this him keep the belt until people get sick of him. Then he becomes a heel and, like, he's, you know, refreshed during, like they did during CM Punk's title run. Right. And then here comes Booker, the opposite of Goldberg, but yeah. you still love him. Like, that, that. that's maybe the perfect way they could have done things. As it is, when I was watching Goldberg on this show, I didn't hate what he was doing. And, yeah. like, I, I kind of got it. And it's one of the only heel things on the whole show that actually got me heat from the crowd. So but I, I want to give him credit. For about another month, and then they right. turn and face and feud with Russo. We're going to have to do New Blood Rising 2000 sometime. That's the one where Goldberg refuses to cooperate and walks out of the match because he doesn't want a job. I've re- yeah, I reviewed that one. <laughs> <laughs> I just love these shows. They're so bad. Like it's literally the worst. Like probably literally the worst wrestling that's ever made it on national TV. It's one of those things for like when you dream about being like a fantasy booker and coming up with your own promotion and doing your own things. You can't do it worse than this. Yeah, is the thing. So like the template is always going to be set that like even if you had no idea what the fuck you were doing and just did shit at random, it wouldn't look any more chaotic or any less structured or any less accomplished than this the kinds of nitros you're getting at this point this is one nitro where all this happened goldberg versus nash was the main event uh jarrett defended the title against hogan with kidman as the referee uh goldberg interfered in that match and jackhammered hogan through a table there was a Ric Flair versus David Flair hair versus hair retirement match. The stipulation being that if Flair lost, he would get his head shaved and have to retire. If David lost, Russo would get his head and his ass shaved. He would get his ass shaved. Oof. Wow. <laughs> I, uh, Flair lost that match and got his head shaved and was forced to retire and I think came back like a month later. I'm sure he didn't even want to come back. <laughs> Why would he? Yeah. Like, what's, what's there for, for Ric Flair in any of this? And yes, that's just one episode of Nitro. All that happens. Yes. Like, every night, it's seemingly every Nitro at this point, they're packing like a month's worth of storylines and twists into just desperately trying to peel off a few viewers and not succeed in. Well, like, why, if you had never watched this show before, okay, let's say that you're just a brand new fan. Why on earth would you continue watching after seeing any of this? Again, it goes to the question of, like, who is the target audience for all of this? And I guess the only answer is Vince Russo was. Yeah, I think he thought it was great. I, I, a few I, weeks before this, uh, Russo either went home voluntarily or was sent home. He was gone for a little while due to conflicts with Bischoff or having a nervous breakdown or something. Of course, the way that he will go on to explain it is that it's all Hulk Hogan's fault. Yeah, that big, bald son of a bitch Hulk Hogan. <laughs> 
So this show, this show is famous for the Hogan, Jarrett, Russo, Bischoff deal. So let's get into that. Yes. Jarrett is scheduled to defend the title against Hogan. The difficulty is figuring out what are they going to do here because different people have different agendas for this match, different visions for, their, for where they want to go here. And everybody involved tells kind of a different story. Um, they all agree there's a dispute over the finish of the match. You know, Russo wants Jarrett to go over, beat Hogan, because Jarrett is Russo's guy. Backing up, what do you think? What do you make of Jeff Jarrett being the WCW champion here? Like, I don't, I, I just, I think they still had better options at this point. I was never a fan of Jarrett being the face of the company. There is always, no matter what company you're talking about or what situation you're in or what scenario you propose, there is always a better option than Jeff Jarrett. That's probably fair, but like Vince Russo just loves Jeff Jarrett. I do you what what's your theory? Why does Vince Russo like Jeff Jarrett so much? Is it just because Jarrett likes Russo? I think Jarrett was one of the Russo is desperately insecure and needs affection. Well, I think Jarrett was just one of the first people who took him seriously when they were both like kind of lower on the card back in the old days in WWE, you know? Yeah, I can see that. But yeah, like just years and years of wrestling are Vince Russo and Jeff Jarrett in WCW and TNA. This just becomes a thing. Jarrett is our guy. And I don't mind Jarrett being the guy in TNA because they didn't have a whole lot of options. But like WCW's got a lot of better guys on this roster. And I guess it's kind of like the, uh, the Kevin Sullivan theory. Like you need a top heel. Whatever else you want to do, you have to have a top heel to build off of. And at the time, I'm just not sure who else there was who could have done it. Yeah. I mean, look, you got Goldberg. He's your heel, but he just turned heel. Man, I mean, it's it's amazing how hollowed out this roster feels compared to where they were a couple of years before this. Like, yeah. what is Sting at this point? Sting doesn't matter at all at this point. Not at all. You know, Bret That's Hart is done. Bret Hart is retired. You know, Scott Hall is gone. Scott Hall's a mess. Steiner was the guy they should have been going with by this point, I think. I think probably. But on the other hand, Scott Steiner is a fucking madman. Yeah, and same deal with Sid. Like, can't count on either guy. And so, yeah, now you're in this situation where it's just, it's literally like, who do I trust to actually show up? And Jarrett, yeah, you can say for, I mean, eh, he's had some issues over the years. But for the most part, Jeff Jarrett has been reliable. Especially if you're Vince Russo. Like, you know that he's going to listen to you and not these other people because he's your buddy first, right? So Hogan and Bischoff want Hogan to get the belt. Russo wants Jarrett to keep it. Adding to all this chaos, um, Bischoff's dad dies on the 4th of July while he's on vacation. So he's kind of just, you know, out of touch for a few days dealing with that. You know, that probably puts him out for a week to deal with, you know, getting back from Wyoming, going to his dad's funeral, making the arrangements. He's just not going to be on top of business for a while. So I feel like there's this long period where they've got no decision on the finish of this title match. And then it's like Bischoff comes back and they're a couple days out from the pay-per-view and they have to make a decision on what they're going to do. Yeah. I, it's, it's, it's a tough spot, man. 
No. I mean, just a, a bad situation for everybody here. Yeah. So let's tell the story from everyone's perspective. Like, <laughs> I just feel like you could do one of those movies here where you're showing the different scenes from the different characters' perspectives and what they say happened because there's some common elements to all of their stories, but they diverge pretty fast. Straight Rashomon, let's go. The Bischoff story is that what they end up agreeing to is Hogan is going to win the title after a ton of chaos, but he's going to be just like so disgusted with Russo and with WCW and everything that's happened that he's going to take the belt and walk out with it in disgust. And he's going to be gone for months. Uh, during this time, there, there will be a tournament to crown a new WCW champion because we clearly need more vacant titles and more tournaments. That's what this promotion has been missing. Oof. The let's finals. Yeah, let's oh, go, ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. No. Okay. The finals of the tournament will be at Halloween Havoc. It'll be two heels in the finals. And then Hogan will come out like, before their match starts, says, you know, I'm the real champion, brother, and get in the ring and defend his title in a triple threat match and presumably body slam one heel on top of the other and leg drop them both and pin them both in the middle of the ring is how I imagine this going. A couple things about this proposed plan. One, it assumes that the audience will side with Hogan <laughs> Assuming yeah. that they also feel that this company fucking sucks. <laughs> like, that's the babyface position is that this yes. company blows. <laughs> and that they will stick with a Hoganless WCW. Tune in for a heel versus heel title main event on a pay-per-view. Yeah. Your the signature pay-per-view, Halloween Havoc. With no notice that Hogan's going to show up. You just assume that you're getting, like, Steiner versus Jarrett. Oh, of course. It's just madness, right? I got to say, this is an absolutely terrible idea. Fucking now, maybe, stupid. maybe what you would do, the finals are going to be on Nitro, and Hogan comes out and stops the match from happening, and you have a big brawl, and you do a triple threat at the pay-per-view instead. But you're still not leaving yourself with any time to promote that main event in that case. Exactly. And it's yeah. still it's not that impactful of a thing to do. It, it's That's not moving the needle. It's just not. No. Bischoff puts this over as if this was like one of his great ideas, and it's really not. It's fucking dumb. And it's probably, let's be honest, it's probably not something that was ever actually thought of to happen. But we'll get to that. Let's move on to the next theory. Um, just to, so what, to wrap up what Bischoff says, he right. says Russo agrees to this. You know, Russo is his subordinate at this point, and like, they brought in Brad Siegel, who was like, you know, the tiebreaker if Bischoff and Russo disagreed and Siegel sided with Bischoff. There's no discussion of Russo doing a shoot promo on Hogan. There is no discussion of Booker T winning the title that night. Supposedly, this show is just going to wrap up with like 30 minutes left because there's no main event. The main event is going to be Hogan, is going to be Goldberg and Nash. Yeah. I, I don't find this plausible because how is that match? Was that match like scripted to go 30 minutes in the format? There's absolutely no way because they were stretching to get it to where it got. Yeah, which is like five minutes. Right. So, like, there's absolutely no chance that that was ever the intention. So, they were just had 20 minutes to play with at the end of the show. They didn't have a true main event. 
if you wanted me to truly believe that that was all off the cuff or that that was all the plan, then they would have put Hogan versus Jared on last. They wouldn't have put it earlier in the card. Yeah, the show ending with Hogan walking out seems like a good cliffhanger. Absolutely. That, that at least gets people talking. This, it all seems quite planned. So Russo's story. Russo wants Jarrett to beat Hogan, and then he wants to put the belt on Booker T later that night. And he claims everyone else who's involved with creative agreed that Booker is the guy who should get the title. I mean, Booker getting the title is a good, probably a good move, as we'll talk about on this show. Booker remains really over as a baby face, despite having done pretty much nothing for two years at this point. And it's a crime. Like we we both discussed on pretty much every WCW podcast we've ever done, that Booker T was the hero that we needed. That was that was their chance at a true sustainable star, and they fucked it. What do you make of the theory that they put the title on Booker as a defense against the racial discrimination lawsuit? I don't necessarily buy that, and I don't think that it necessarily would have served as in any way really beneficial to that. And I just, with all of these other things that are going on, I don't think this is how they would have done that. It would have been with way more pomp and circumstance. Hey, look at us crown the black champion. Yeah. He wins the belt on Martin Luther King Day and like yes. Coretta Ron, Scott King presents him with the belt. Ron Simmons is in the front row <laughs> clapping. Um, instead of, he get, he wins the belt in an impromptu match on a pay-per-view no one bought. It's not even advertised. Like, it doesn't make sense that they would have done it that way. Um, so what Russo says the agreement is, he eventually gets Hogan to agree that there will be a bunch of interference, a disqualification. He gets to beat up everybody, but Jarrett sneaks off with the title. Um, Russo claims Hogan agreed to this, but then changed his mind, sent a fax to the office, like with notification saying, you know, I don't agree to do this. I'm invoking creative control. Let's just imagine all it said was that doesn't work for me, brother. Yeah. <laughs> um, the problem is they send this fax like after business hours on Friday. So nobody sees it until Monday. Um, Bischoff does actually say he told Hogan to have his attorney send this letter to like start drafting the paper trail as they're having their dispute with Russo. Because let's remember, Hulk Hogan has creative control. He has an ironclad contract. He can't be made to do anything he doesn't want to. That's absolutely true. And we do know that there was a letter. Like That's confirmed by all parties. There, What was in it is not agreed upon, but there was a letter. So they get to the building, you know, Russo says, you know, this is where he finds out Hogan doesn't want to do the match. He goes to Hogan's trailer. He ends up talking to Hogan. They settle on Jarrett is just going to lay down for Hogan because that's what would happen, quote unquote, if this was real. What does that mean? 
God, I... That's just the insane warped Vince Russo. If this was real, bro, if I told Jeff that you didn't want a job for him, what he would do is he would just lay down and let you pin him. What does that mean if this was real? I don't know what that means. And I, I honestly think that that's... The promo that Vince Russo is going to cut, which we're obviously going to cover in detail, it, it reveals, it, it really seems like Jeff Vince Russo is so deeply in his feelings about how Jeff Jarrett is a self-sacrificing hero that, like, that colors all of this for him. This is all about giving something to Jeff Jarrett somehow, which is weird. Just the idea that Jeff Jarrett should beat Hulk, like, deserves to beat Hulk Hogan. Like, see, that's the thing. You Hulk would Hogan, put... the biggest star in wrestling history. Hulk Hogan, who sold out the Pontiac Silverdome, who built the WWF into a worldwide empire, and then made WCW the most successful wrestling company in the history of the world. But what's really important here is that Jeff Jarrett get his win over Hulk Hogan. Yeah. It's like, look, I, everybody liked Zack Ryder for a, a minute, but he wouldn't beaten John Cena, and that would have been fucking stupid. Like... Of, but for nothing in the entire world is probably ever an easier that doesn't work for me, brother, than, hey, Jeff Jarrett's going to beat you in the middle. Yeah. So Russo then claims they agreed. Uh, Hogan will walk out with the belt. Russo will cut a shoot promo on Hogan to sell the angle, and they will work the boys. I should point out, Bischoff was also obsessed with the idea that they were going to work all the wrestlers with this like why this is the dumbest thing this just infects wrestling and for some reason wb is starting to do this kind of stuff too with this like brock throwing the belt at vince after wrestlemania like why are they doing this yeah like why <laughs> have we gotten why like it's just like <sighs> The wrestlers used to know it was a work and the fans thought it was a shoot. And like, for some reason now we want the wrestlers to think it was a shoot and the fans know it's a work. It, it's just, for some reason they seem obsessed with the idea that if you can work the boys, you can work the fans. Yeah. That's what's going to get over. Oh, we're going to work the dirt sheets. And like, it's so funny to hear the same people who shit on Dave Meltzer so constantly are so obsessed with tricking him. Like, they think it's going to be over if they can get Meltzer to write that their storyline was a shoot in The Observer, as if their entire audience is reading that. Now, I will say, probably the most honest and interesting thing that Eric Bischoff has said on his podcast the entire time is that the people in the WCW office were reading the dirt sheets yes. to figure out what was going on in their own company. Jesus, what a world. So if you're if you're under those circumstances, I can almost understand how you feel like you have to work the boys, because if you tell them what's going on, then they're just going to parrot that to the dirt sheets with their own blah, blah, blah. This is basically the kind of story that they were feeding to the dirt sheets at the time was Hulk Hogan is mad with power and refuses to job to anybody. And Vince Russo won't take it anymore. This storyline, this angle is exactly what they what was in the dirt sheets about what was going on backstage at the time. It was completely believable. So I I almost get it, but I don't at the same time. 
So Russo says Hogan was fired up by this idea that like I'll have a belt and Booker will have a belt and like we can do a big match from that. And Russo's just like, yeah, sure, whatever, that's fine. Like he doesn't care about that. Like he just he needs Hogan to be on board with this thing with Jarrett and then get the belt on Booker. He has no plans for Hogan after this. Right. Um, so Russo says he and Hogan agree they'll talk the next day. Um, but then the next day, Brad Siegel tells Hogan, tells Russo they can't afford to book Hogan anymore. We're just going to let him sit at home for the rest of his contract. And Russo never calls Hogan. Hogan now thinks he's been double-crossed. He starts reading the dirt sheets ends up suing over this and like this is how it happened like it was a work that got out of control um what do you make of that story i think that's easily the most believable thing to this is that it was a work that turned into a shoot yeah i think this was to some degree a double cross like i don't think i think russo went a lot further in his promo yes and he had told bischoff and hogan he was going to do and i think like he was using this to get rid of hogan and Bischoff. And this is all very believable. Like Vince Russo has told you from his own mouth again and again that the reason why he left WWF to begin with is that he's a very sensitive dude. Like when stuff like this and the politics happen, like he gets burnt out incredibly fast. He gets very impatient. He gets he acts erratically. He he makes bad decisions. Like yeah. that's Vince Russo's whole career. His whole life, even if you follow <laughs> all the way back yeah. to working in the video store. Like it, he's just a person who makes impractical, impromptu decisions. Sometimes they work great. Sometimes they work terribly. This is one where he was in his feelings about Jeff Jarrett and Hulk Hogan and how they couldn't get this together. And he just unleashed that on screen. And when you watch it, you feel that. Hogan's side of the story. He and Russo and Bischoff are in a meeting. Russo wants him to lose to Jarrett. Hogan's willing to do the job, but he asked, you know, what are we going to do after this? And Russo says, oh, we're not going to use you anymore. Like, you're done here. Hogan, you know, is angry about that, insists that he win the belt. Eventually, they agree to a finish there. Russo will try to interfere. Scott Steiner will show up and run Russo off, and Hogan will win the belt. Uh, That is an entirely different story than Bischoff's version of the story. Yes. Now, here's what we need to remember about Hulk Hogan, is that Hulk Hogan's thing is and has always been security and trust. He's been a top guy his entire career, and he has ridden the top of the political currents to success in every company, right? And it it often seems that these stories always come back to Hulk Hogan wanting to feel like he can trust what's going to happen and that he just will not be part of it if he can't trust what's going on. So, like, in this particular case, I can almost believe that he's like, oh, uh, I'll put over Jarrett, but you got to make me feel like I'm wanted. Oh, you don't make me feel that way? Well, fuck you. Put the belt on me then. Fuck you. I can't trust you. Um, In the aftermath, Bischoff leaves WCW. He never comes back. Same with Hogan. Like, Russo is given essentially control over the company, but that only lasts a few months before he flames out quits or gets sent home, whatever. And then WCW just kind of muddles along for a couple more months until they get canceled. And then you have the Bischoff trying to buy the company and it falling through and 
McMahon ultimately purchasing the company. I mean, and let's not forget that Hulk Hogan is going to walk away with like $11 billion from this lawsuit. It's yeah. so much money they can't even talk about how much it is. Yeah, Hogan got paid for this. He got paid. It's just, yeah, like how, it's just you got to reflect on how insane it is that Vince Russo double crosses a guy with an ironclad creative control clause in his contract. Yeah, all they had to do was prove that he sent that letter that says yeah. it's not going to work for me, which they did. Yeah. And then all the evidence that you need is right there on television because Vince Russo literally explains on television how he fucked him over. How did they not fight? Like, that's such a perfect reason to fire Russo for cause and get out of his contract and, like, sue him for this because he's damaged the company. Like, And, and let's be clear. Instead, how- he gets promoted. He ends up in charge of the company. However much money that, that Hogan got for this lawsuit, and we'll never know exactly how much it was, but it's fair to say that it's probably the most money any wrestling company had ever lost in one year ever. Like, I, I think it might be, except maybe WWE in a particularly bad year in the 90s, but like, no wrestling company had ever really lost like tens of millions of dollars in one year before. And none of those other lawsuits had ever really gone anywhere. This is the only one that's like open shut. We have to pay $10 million to someone because you're a fucking idiot. How you don't get fired for a mistake like that is astounding. No. And again, I'll point out like he really got promoted instead. Bischoff had been like overseeing him. Bischoff's gone now. He has more creative freedom than he did before. And things get even worse after this with him having more control. And I guess I can kind of sympathize with the people making the decisions there because who else do you put in charge? Sullivan again? Nash? Eventually they put John. I think Johnny A sends up booking at the end. Yeah, I don't think he was there yet. I, he, I, I believe uh, he comes in around this time. I think he might be there by now. Well, they bring him in to be like the, the Finnish guy, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because he had that great experience from Japan with finishes, I guess. Yeah. Let's be incredibly clear about this. I'm not sure. We're going to go on a slight aside here about Johnny Ace. I'm not <laughs> sure if people know how Johnny Ace became Johnny Ace. You see, back in the day in all Japan, Johnny Ace was like the one white guy who never left. All these guys, Gene, Stan Hansen, Ted DiBiase, all these guys would come over and work all Japan. But he just stuck around. He was Mrs. Baba, Giant Baba's wife's favorite wrestler. And so he just became kind of part of their office there after that. It's like her right-hand man after her husband died. And then he came to the States with that reputation. And look, I'm not going to say how much he deserved it. Yes, I am. He didn't deserve it. And then he comes to WCW where he's the booker and the worst time to be. Like, literally, you can't do any wrong. It's just like resume fluff. Like, hey, I was the head booker of WCW. Doesn't matter what I did, it couldn't have succeeded anyway. And then he goes to WWE, where everyone and their mom says that he was the most relentless ass kisser who ever walked the face of the earth. And he wound up becoming one of the most powerful men in all of wrestling by doing really nothing. Just being loyal and sticking around counts for a lot in wrestling. It, it apparently really, really does. But he's officially the only man ever to run all Japan, WCW, and WWE. Like that's that's fun. 
That's madness. I also want to mention Hogan's interview on Bubba the Love, Love Sponge, where he claims he brought razor blades to the ring to protect himself. Yes. <laughs> against, I brought my blades with me that night, brother. I don't know if those are metaphorical blades or real blades. Now, it's not like Hulk Hogan ever wrestled in the South or was... I mean, he was a bad guy for a while for Vern, but I don't I don't think that he ever had to deal with like that old school heat yeah, where he had to like tape blades to his fist just in case it got out of hand. Probably not, no. Like, he's Hulk Hogan. Like, I, I find it like Brutus the Barber Beefcake had the blades on his hand, right? <laughs> That's what he's there for. Yeah, you're carrying the blades and the weed, brother. You got to deal with the problems. He also claimed he called Vince to tell him he would have his son, Nick Hogan, bring the WCW title out on Raw and give it to Vince. (sighs) I once tried to document all of Hulk Hogan's insane lies. It was a very long list. But that's such a tantalizing idea, isn't it? (laughs) Here in 2000? They They can't do it. This has been settled. You can't use the other company's belts on TV. Oh, it would have cost them millions. Millions upon millions. But Vince might have done it anyway. (laughs) (sighs) Okay. So to get into the actual show, it's Sunday, July the 9th, 2000. We're at the Ocean Center in Daytona Beach, Florida. There's 6,572 people in attendance. uh, 4,447 paid for a $120,000 gate and $25,000 in merchandise. Those numbers are down so far from what they had been doing a couple of years before this. Mm. Not great. Buy rate 0.25 for about 100,000 buys, uh, down from the 175,000 they had done the previous year and nearly 600. 100,000 that they had done in 1998. Uh, the company's gross on $100,000 buys, 100,000 buys would be about $1.5 million, and they would owe Hulk Hogan a guaranteed payment of $675,000 for booking him on this show. So, is it even money just that he makes Hogan. an appearance, not just a match? Like, even if he shows up, they have to owe him that? I suspect it might have been, which is why you had him doing interference on a lot of shows he wasn't booked on in, like, 97 and 98. Man, that's fucking wild. And that doesn't even factor in how much they paid him after the lawsuit. They ended up losing a lot of money on this show. Oh, God, yeah. On commentary, we have the wretched team of Tony Schiavone, Mark Madden, and Scott Hudson. Mostly, I just hate Mark Madden. I don't have just... I got no problem with Shivani or Scott Hudson. Let's just talk for a second about how Mark Hudson is the worst color commentator in the history. Mark Hudson would be really bad if you combined Mark Madden and Scott Hudson into one. <laughs> I'm sorry, person. I meant Mark Madden. Good point. Good point. Like, but like Mark Madden sucks. It's literally like he he watched Jerry Lawler play Jerry Lawler and was just like, all right, let me take the scumbag parts yes. and make them worse. Yeah. And it's like insufferable. Like it's, but it's like just saying the worst thing that comes to mind without any wit or humor to it. Just like somebody comes out and he's just like, oh, she's pretty fat. Like, okay. And without the credibility of being a legendary wrestler or, yeah, like any of, like Jerry Lawler can actually be funny. Like, right. And he's way, 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 way wittier than anybody should be able to be, or he never would have gotten away with anything he's ever done in his life. So Mark Madden, 
is a shitty sports reporter, sports writer, you know, sports talk radio host from Pittsburgh who was also a fan of wrestling. I sure had a wrestling radio show at some point. I don't know who hired him or why they thought it was a good idea. Yeah, it's look, I I and I frequently like he dappled his toes into wrestling journalism on quite a few occasions. Quote unquote journalism. And however many things that you might hear negative about Brian Alvarez and Dave Meltzer, and I've tweeted a number of shitty things about Brian Alvarez this week because he handled a particular situation in a disgraceful manner. But Mark Madden is way worse than all of those people put together. <laughs> He's just a disgraceful human being on a number of levels, just in all of his public dealings. And I'm sorry that this just became the Mark Madden burial hour, but that's just the way it is. Uh, if you really want to hear Mark Madden get buried, just listen to any of the many Jim Cornette clips talking about him. Oh, God. Because yeah. nobody does a burial like Cornette. <laughs> okay, the show opens with WCW Commissioner Ernest the Cat Miller getting out of a limo. Uh, some stereotypically Asian music begins to play and he's attacked by the young dragons who he proceeds to beat up. This becomes a running skit throughout the show. They're like the Cato to his inspector Clouseau. <laughs> That's the whole joke. Like they, they just attack him and he fights them. There's like four different segments on the show where like ninjas appear to like generic Kung Fu music. And, like, your mileage may vary. Like, a segment comes later where they're all, like, hiding in hampers and stuff. And, like, Jimmy Yang is hiding behind a broom that he's holding up. And that made me laugh. Like, I'm not going to lie. I, that got a chuckle out of me. Yeah. The Young Dragons were super talented. Like, Jimmy Yang, Jamie Noble. I can't think of who the third guy was. That's like, Hayashi, yeah. That's Hayashi, yeah. Like, these guys are talented. And, like, they're stuck doing this. Yeah. they're. I mean, they're incredible. There are the makings of like a completely rejuvenated cruiserweight division in this company right now. But the way that Russo's doing these things is that nobody's an individual on this show anymore. Everybody's affiliated with a gigantic stable that they're faceless inside of. So like nobody stables, but yeah, they go way too far with it. Yeah. Like there's there's just, you can't have your whole roster be stables. Exactly. Somebody's got to be on their own. Somebody's got to have their own personality. Nobody has personality here. Like they're all just, a conglomeration of same-looking assholes. First match uh, for the WSW Cruiserweight title, uh, Lieutenant Loco, a.k.a. Chavo Guerrero, defends against Juventud Guerrero. Uh, so Lieutenant Loco, as I said, Chavo Guerrero, he's part of the Misfits in Action stable. This consists of Hugh Morris as General E. Raction, uh, Major Guns, uh, Lash LaRue as Corporal Cajun and Van Hammer as Private Stash. Ha ha, get it. Uh, Booker T had been a member of this stable as GI Bro until a week or two before this show. I actually liked MIA. Like, I thought this was actually like a pretty good stable that got these guys over. I mean, it's not like any of them were particularly over before this, really. <laughs> no, none of them have any personality on their own. It just it's so weird that this is the stable that Booker T is a part of because once upon a time he played GI Bro. Yeah. Which no one remember. I think he was Booker T in like Global Wrestling, whatever that company was called. 
It's actually really funny because in part of Russo's speech, he refers to like Booker T's been busting his ass for 14 years. And I'm like, do you know, like, why does Vince Russo know about his goings on in 1986? Like, what are you talking about? Yeah. Um, and why was Booker T, if, if Russo was so high, I guess Russo loved MIA because it was his idea. But yeah, like the idea that like Booker's getting screwed over by the head writer, me. Because I had him be GI Bro for months before this, right? And before that, he was feuding with Stevie Ray over the letter T. That's a thing that happened. It happened. Uh, it happened so much. Uh, Hoovy is in the Filthy Animals, which is Conan, Rey Mysterio, Disco Inferno, and Tigress. How about Disco Inferno being in a stable of like cool rappers? When Conan is doing his like his whole deal, and like every time Disco Inferno cuts in and says a thing, the coolness of the whole deal just drops to the ground. Just defines douche chill. He is the lamest person who's ever lived ever. Which I think is part of the joke, right? But like, and here's the problem is that Conan's just not that cool anymore in yeah, this context. Like his, his catchphrases aren't really catching on anymore. He doesn't seem like he's really that into it. it just, it's just not working. And I guess it's supposed to be like a vehicle for Ray, but they don't really use it as one. No, and like, I don't think Ray being in a stable is a good idea anyway. I mean, I agree that it's not a bad idea to give him somebody to talk for him at this point, especially if you want him to be a heel, but... Why is Rey Mysterio a heel? Yeah! <laughs> That's insane! Like, the whole stable works if you just use Hoovy instead of Ray, and they already have Hoovy, so just let Ray be, like, the one guy not in a fucking stable. Hoovy is doing his Juice persona, which is a parody of The Rock, and I actually thought this was pretty great. This is the greatest thing that WCW produced, maybe ever, is the juice. I'm just like, finally, the juice has come back to Orlando. And somebody's like, Hoovy, we're in Daytona. What? Who cares? Jabronis? <laughs> oh, so and like, the... His English wasn't even that good yet. So like, he's totally butchering every segment. <laughs> Uh, the cat has banned both the filthy animals and MIA from ringside here. But will that keep them from interfering in the match? Of course not. If anything, it just makes them interfere way more. Yeah. Uh, crowd is actually really into this. It's a good high-flying match. Uh, the filthy animals come down the ramp wearing, like, monster masks. Uh, they all get ejected by the refs. Hoovy blocks a Super Frankensteiner attempt with a powerbomb. Uh, now MIA comes down, uh, also wearing masks. I think they were, like one of them was wearing a Bill Clinton mask. I can't remember. Were they all wearing president masks? Were they, I think like, they were. They were like the gang from Point Break. Yeah. Except for Major Guns, who's just Major Guns. And she rips her shirt off, which distracts Hoovy, understandably. As it would. <laughs> Um, Loco rolls him up and has the pin. The referees are distracted. Chavo hits some kind of power bomb, nearly gets the pin, but uh, Hoovy comes back, hits the Hoovy driver. Chavo gets his feet on the ropes. Chavo then hits the tornado DDT for the pin. Best match on the show? By like a thousand million <laughs> points. <laughs> yeah. Good, high flying, fast paced opener. Got the crowd going. 
I am actually going to have positive things to say about this show and some people on it as we go on. I know that seems like kind of crazy out of the blue, but it is true. And this is a good match. Humanitude Guerrera is has a ton of personality yeah. and it's fabulous to watch in the ring during this period. Like yeah. before he gets like fat and like super, you know, on coke and stuff. Like that this period though, he's amazing. It's great. I- yeah, I can't think of a Hoovy match from this era that didn't deliver. Like every WCW show we've reviewed that he was on, his match was awesome. Yeah, he's just like, he's one of those people who just, it always feels like anything can happen in the ring when he's in there. And that's really cool quality. And uh, Chavo just doesn't suck, so that's fine. Cat <laughs> is uh, in the back in his office with the Young Dragons. Uh, Jeff Jarrett comes in demanding to know where Hogan is. He has a Viking woman with him for some reason. I kind of prefer to just not know the context here. I think it's because the fat lady's going to sing on his career. Okay, sure. I'll take I, it. I assume because why, they don't why make is she any Viking. I uh, opera singer, I guess. I uh, not clear on that, and it's never explained. And that he even gives her a name like Ophelia over here is getting ready <laughs> for what. Next up uh, for the WCW World Hardcore Championship, we've got Big Vito versus Norman Smiley and Ralphus. So the story here is that Vito injured uh, Terry Funk on Thunder with an attack with his stickball bat. He was supposed to wrestle Terry Funk, but Funk can't do the match. So it's a mystery opponent here. And it's a surprise return for Norman Smiley, who gets a really huge pop. Uh, He's backed up by Ralphus. I'm a huge mark for Norman Smiley. Like, anything Norman Smiley I'm into. The only person in the waning years of WCW who gets over from scratch is Norman Smiley. Who gets over by... I guess he's the only character who vince russo successfully channels like attitude era wwe in you know screaming norman just like it's funny it's crude but it's it's it doesn't suck it's interesting you know screaming norman the guy who's terrified of hardcore matches reflect on like norman smiley's career like so he you know comes up through the british wrestling scene um He's on Starcade 1990 with Chris Adams in a tag team tournament. He wrestles in UFI in Japan. He was the CMML, CMLL World Heavyweight Champion. Hugely famous in Mexico. Huge as Black Magic. Wrestled in ECW, then comes into WCW and is just a complete jobber. Um, And then he starts doing the big wiggle, which is this hilarious dance where he gets behind his opponent and like smacks their ass and dances while doing it and becomes hugely over for this. Like words can't explain. Like it's like the crowd only gets one thing that they like on this whole show, but the big wiggle is it. Like that's, that's enough. was over crazy over. And And I love the way that they used him because they never made him credible for one single solitary second. Is like they just kept putting him in hardcore matches where he would just fuck up and win, and I, I kind of love that kind of character. It's it's Crash Holly esque. Yeah, and I think he started before Crash Holly too. 
I mean, it's just like the it's the template for let's put let's have humorous hardcore matches, and it's great. It's a lot of fun. Unfortunately, a lot of people actually do get hurt because their hardcore matches are super sloppy and terrible. Oh yeah, Finley nearly had his career ended. Like nearly got his leg amputated. I also want to pay a compliment to Big Vito here, who of all of these green shitheads who yeah. don't belong in a wrestling like ring, Vito. he's got something. Yeah. He's got some charisma. He's got the look, the size. Something is working for him. Yeah. And here, where he just kind of rips them apart, like it's like it's cool. It's I liked it. Of course, the most over he got ever was wearing in a, a dress. dress in WWE. We're going to have to cover dress Vito sometime. I don't remember. Was, I don't know how we'll do that, but we will. He was gigantically over you guys. Like, if you don't remember, if you weren't watching that. this. Yeah, love that run. Because they had no fucking idea what to do with that character. Um. So... I just want to point out, like, Norman Smiley is a fantastic technical wrestler. Yes. One, one of the, the greatest, greatest ever. Of all time. But he only really got over doing the Screaming Norman character. Fun fact, Norman Smiley is a trainer in yep. NXT today. Yeah. Like, again, what a fucking weird career this guy's had. Right. Uh, so they have a hardcore match. They fight backstage. Ralphus hits Vito with a trash can. Smiley does the big wiggle. They hit each other with some stuff. Uh, they go back to the ring. Vito puts Ralphus through a table with a super fly splash off the top and pins him. That was inoffensive to me. Uh, just perfectly enjoyable hardcore match. You've left out one part, which I thought was the most brilliant thing I'd ever seen in my life. They're brawling in the back, and there's an elevator. And it's a handicap match with Ralphus and uh, Norman Smiley against Big Vito. So Big Vito throws Norman Smiley into the elevator, yes. sends it up like 10 floors, and then beats the shit out of Ralphus while Norman Smiley's gone. Like, that's genius. I love, I mean, just to recap Ralphus, I believe he was like part of the ring crew and like Chris Jericho thought he looked funny and decided Ralphus should be his bodyguard. He made hundreds of thousands of dollars yeah. off of just randomly being chosen because he was so ugly. Like, yeah. that's the dream. Uh, they show Goldberg arriving. Uh, mean Gene interviews Kevin Nash. He says he'll wrestle Goldberg tonight. Um, they bleep out the words ass and prick on pay-per-view for some reason. Which uh, is weird because they don't bleed out shit later. <laughs> yeah. Well, that that was a shoot, bro. Oh, okay. That's right. That That's a good point. Uh, next up, we've got a wedding gown match between Daphne and Miss Hancock, a.k.a. Stacey Keebler. This oh, match man. made me insane. Oh, I've God. never seen anything like this before. They're fighting over David Flair. Yes, Which, first seriously. of all, <laughs> David Flair is the lamest douchebag guy like if you were just like trying to conjure in your mind like a milk toast charisma yeah. human being david flair would appear in your mind's eye didn't he actually date stacy keebler though yes actually i believe they were engaged for a while that like that's true. real life wow yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. really i kicked his coverage on that one in fact, I believe the rumor was is that he wanted this storyline because he wanted everyone to know that his real girlfriend was way hotter than his fake girlfriend. That's God. Oh, that's something. Yeah, that's that's a real thing. So there's all sorts of like I'm trying to remember where this storyline. I think they I think 
Stacy eventually got pregnant and had a miscarriage. Loves miscarriage angles. Like wrestling match. Yeah, Yeah, the number one thing that's over with Vince Russo is miscarriages. God, that's a horrifying sentence you just (laughs) said. Um I think at some point Russo wanted it to turn out that he was the father of their baby because he wanted to be banging Stacey Keebler in the storylines. Totally believable. And then it was going to turn out that Ric Flair was actually Stacey Keebler's father. Like, oh my God. Yeah, like, <laughs> makes you wonder, like, where did, <laughs> did Vince McMahon's obsession with incest somehow rub off on Vince Russo? Or vice versa. Yeah. Okay, but we, we got to talk about what happens in this match. So you win by ripping your opponent's wedding dress off. Stacy is wearing what I would say is essentially a nightgown, it looks like. Yep. <laughs> Daphne is in a full-length black dress. With, like, full-body spanks underneath. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Daphne not into this shit. No, which is good, because why would she? And, like, the, the template for this match is very simple. Like, Daphne comes out full of rage, beats up Miss Hancock, end of match. Maybe David Flair, like, screws her, and Hancock gets the win or something, right? Yeah. And afterward, Daphne can rip off Stacy's dress so the crowd gets to see her in her underwear. The template has been set for this exact thing for 50 years. Like, this is not the first rodeo for this kind of match. That is not how this goes. <laughs> One good spot, Stacy does a handspring back elbow. Like, literally, as she winds up to do it, I, I was literally saying out loud, please don't do a move. Please don't do a move. Please don't do a move. I don't want anyone to get hurt. Uh, Stacy rips off the referee's pants. Daphne rips off flares. Uh, for some reason, the referee has his shirt tucked into his briefs. Yeah, fuck? like a super long shirt tucked into his underwear. Maybe that, he was just really shy about being in his underwear. Just, yeah, that feels like he's some kind of sociopath. Also, let the record show that that I believe that's Mark Jackson. Mark, what, what's the name of that guy? Fuck, Mark he, Curtis. No, it's like Slick Johnson or something like that. Like uh, he would go on to become like the TNA referee, and like his official spot would be getting his pants ripped off. Okay, that's something to be known for. Yeah, so, so you know that's where this starts. Crowbar shows up and beats up David Flair. Crowbar takes off his pants. Let, let me let me paint you a word picture. <laughs> this seems like a good time for that. Okay, here's the situation that we have. This match begins with the normal brawling between Daphne and Hancock. Then David Flair gets in the ring and just starts actively shoving Daphne around. He never leaves the ring. He just stands in the ring being in the way. And then he just kind of totters around for a while. And then the referee's pants get ripped off and David Flair's pants get ripped off. But David Flair doesn't sell it. He's just still standing there like nothing's wrong. He's just literally standing in the middle of the ring looking at people and just meandering around. Meanwhile, Daphne and Miss Hancock are just looking at each other like they forgot the spots. And then Crowbar runs in and he performs some actual moves. And then he just looks around, and then he just rips off his own pants. And he's not wearing briefs like everybody else is. He's just wearing normal boxers. So, like, maybe this wasn't even part of the match. Maybe he just on the fly decided to take his pants off. Everybody I don't know. else says. And then, like, but this the match continues on for, like, five more minutes after everyone's in their underwear. And David Flair never leaves, and Crowbar never leaves. 
and no one ever actually performs moves on each other. So everybody's just kind of wandering around until at one point, like Stacy's just like, oh, I know what everybody wants. And she just removes her own pants, end of match. It, but it's it has no structure or flow like a professional wrestling match should. It's almost as if nobody in the ring was told in advance what they were supposed to do. It's just like there's a wedding cake out there. Somebody Stacy loses her pants, so do you guys. Figure it out. And it's just insane. Daphne then smashes Stacy's face into a cake after the match. Indeed. And the yeah. cake gets all over the ring and it takes forever to clean it up. Like they show a, a footage of these poor ringside guys with like mops and shit trying desperately to get five pounds of cake off of the ring mats. Yeah. As the announcers are reminiscing about the previous much better Bash at the Beach shows. Yeah, that actually happens where they're just like, man, remember when the shows were good? <laughs> yeah, remember when this company didn't suck? They make reference to that a number of times on commentary. At the very end of the night, I think Shivani says something like, well, we're sure this was a lot of work for you guys to watch at home. Oh, it's just like, yeah. so it, Why are you doing so much where you're dumping on your own company? Like, you got to pretend like it's good even when it's not, right? It's like the ugly girl who's super self-deprecating. And it's just like, well, stop drawing attention to your, like, to your flaws like what are you doing like you can't just be like yeah we knew this sucked but you know thanks for trying <laughs> that doesn't make anyone happy that doesn't make people think this was a good show that they watched just because you also understand that it sucked it doesn't after, help after they finally clean the ring we've got our next match it's the perfect event defending their tag titles against chronic uh, the perfect event is Chuck Palumbo and Sean Stasiak, two green assholes. And I'm going to pay some people compliments in this match because I don't feel like any of these people have gotten a lot of compliments over the past 25 years. So let me just say this. Chuck Palumbo, I always thought, seemed like he had genuine potential. Yeah. Didn't fulfill it. But yeah. As part of Billy and Chuck, like that tag team really worked. Um, I His rip-off of the American Badass thing, I thought, had legs that it never really got. He just always seemed like he had fire that they never really got to. But you could at least see the potential. Yeah. And Chronic was genuinely over as a smash em up Road Warriors knockoff. Oh, I loved Chronic. Chronic was great. Like, they did their thing. It made sense. Yeah. It's funny that it's Crush and Adam Bomb in there together. Um, they eventually become a complete ripoff of the APA and are just like the hired muscle who anybody can pay to beat people up. But that's great. That's a great yeah. thing to rip off. It's so good. They will then proceed to go to WWF during the invasion and have one of the worst pay-per-view matches of all time against The Undertaker and Kane. So bad that The Undertaker basically decides that they're dead. Like... It's impressive. I'm pretty sure Brian Clark or um yeah, I'm pretty sure Crush was in the Bone Bone, Bone Street crew. Yeah, that's the thing. Like I thought that if anybody was gonna come up from WCW and actually get a run, it'd be the guys who were in the company before. Yeah. But, but no. <laughs> they get one night and then they get jobbed the fuck out. Uh there's a lot of stall in here. Chronic dominates, they just throw both guys around the ring. Uh, perfect event, pull off some double teams, and they work heat on Adams. There's a hot tag to Clark. He goes for his pump handle slam finisher, but 
Stasiak slips out and DDTs him. Now they get heat on Clark. Um, Adams tags back into the ring, double choke slam on Stasiak, then on Palumbo. Uh, Stasiak comes into the ring with an exercise bar, but he gets cut off. Chronic then hit a really cool powerbomb flying clothesline combo to win the match and the tag titles. I actually thought this was a pretty good match. It honestly was pretty good. And like, this goes like 15 minutes. Like it's astounding that we actually got this. This is not the kind of thing they normally did. Well, they had to fill some time on this show. They sure did. But like, this is good. And this is the kind of thing you should have been giving the young guys like Stasiak and Palumbo, like a chance to wrestle and, do it on the main stage and like this isn't bad like you can see a future of a tag division in this uh back in his office cat is on the phone Jarrett comes in to complain once again that hogan isn't there and then the young dragons attack cat again and it's like the worst beatdown of all time like jimmy yang like drops the kendo stick a couple of times and then he jumps up on the desk but then hops back down <laughs> It's like they were told, hey, make sure you don't break anything while you're beating his ass. Yeah. So this whole Hogan not being here thing, clearly, I mean, they're clearly teasing like there's some problem putting the match together. I mean, uh, yeah. So, uh, again, it's clear that the storyline is laid out in advance. The idea that it wasn't is nonsense. Yeah, I agree. Um, next up, we've got Positively Canyon versus Booker T. Positively Canyon is Canyon doing an impersonation of Diamond Dallas Page, and it was fucking hilarious. The whole new blood is just like, hey, pick your favorite old timer and then take their personality. Yeah, so he's got DDP's book, Positively Page. He will just run around diamond cutting random people, uh, foreshadowing Randy Orton's later gimmick. Is this before or after the New Jersey triad? I believe that's happened already. I think that was 99. Okay, so they've already been in a stable together. Um, yeah. I remember a segment where, like, somebody ran Canyon out of the arena, so he's, like, driving his car out of the arena, and he stops, gets out, like, diamond cuts the parking lot attendant, and then gets <laughs> back in the car and drives away. That's like, amazing. Positively, I mean, A, Canyon was just super talented, but, like, Positively Canyon was actually really funny. It's it's really interesting how when WWE eventually is going to take all these guys on, a few people get over, and mostly because they're the ones who have a sense of humor, and it, it usually gets crafted in this. Like, it's funny that, like, the two people who have the best run when it first comes through are, like, Canyon and Shane Helms, who have been, like, making asses of themselves for years. Yeah. Um, so Booker T has just gone back to being Booker T after having been GI bro for a while. He is crazy over. Crazy over. <laughs> Everybody is raising the roof. Everybody is chanting Booker T. He is the only person who they are clearly here to see. Yeah. Like it's he's wild. the guy. Booker's in control early. Canyon turns the tide with a cheap shot and works on Booker's knee. Um, Canyon locks on a reverse Boston crab. So yes. he's like facing the ops way. I've never seen this hold before. Nor have I. Booker makes a comeback. He hits a spine buster, but Canyon gets his foot on the ropes to break up the pin. 
Booker tries to use a chair that Canyon brought into the ring, but the ref stops him. That allows Canyon to hit Booker with his copy of Positively Page. Normally, this is loaded up with a brick, but it turns out the brick fell out earlier, so Booker <laughs> kicks out of the pin. We're hitting people with bricks. We've really gone off the rails here. Oh, yeah. It's good times. We get a Harlem sidekick from Booker, the axe kick, and the bookend, but Canyon kicks out. Why is Canyon kicking out of Booker's finish? Yeah, Booker T at this point has four finishes, it's worth yeah. mentioning. He has the bookend, the scissor kick, the missile drop kick, and the Harlem hangover, which have all been established finishers of his, which is fun. And it seems like he's going for the Harlem hangover to finish this match. But yeah, like especially since the bookend's the thing that he stole from The Rock to be The Rock with. Like why everybody kicks out of it. It's very strange. Yeah. Booker goes up to the top rope. Jeff Jarrett shows up and hits him with a guitar for some reason. Was there any storyline reason for why Jeff Jarrett would do this? I don't want to say no, but I I think he said something in the backstage segment earlier that was like, you know, if Hogan doesn't get here soon, we're going to have some real problems. So I think he's just mad Hogan hasn't shown up yet, and this is why he interferes in the match. I mean, functionally, this is because... Yeah, they need to put some heat event. on the main event. The Again, real. what did why did Bischoff think that this was happening? I'm say, oh, I guess, and he would say like on that podcast where he talks about it, like, oh, I wasn't really paying that much attention to the segment to segment booking. Like, really, he doesn't even realize he's burying himself when he says things like that. Is the amazing thing? Yeah, it's like it's not my problem. I just let Vince be Vince. Like, you were his boss. I was just idiot. in charge of the. Con- I'd love to hear Vince McMahon ever say that. I was say, like, oh, I didn't know what Brian Gortz was booking. I was just letting him go. Yeah. Uh, Canyon hits the super diamond cutter off the top rope for the pen. Very weird that Canyon wins this match, oh. especially since you would think it would be setting up for like him to be a title opponent for Booker after he wins the title. Of course, that doesn't happen. Yeah. Because no, no title shot opportunity that's obvious ever happens. I also just remembered that a couple months before this, Canyon got thrown off the top of that massive triple decker cage. Like, I think that was Slambury in May. So, again, they've just like, their storylines are just starting over at random. Yep. Like, yeah. Uh, Pamela Paulshock tries to interview Mike Awesome, but he is preoccupied hitting on the large Viking woman because this is his gimmick. The fat chick thriller, Mike Awesome. Fat chick thriller. Dude. So let's talk about how awesome Mike Awesome was in ECW. Oh, man. Badass. Like, amazing matches with Masato Tanaka. ECW World Heavyweight Champion beat Taz. And, like, here was the magic of Mike Awesome. He was the perfect ECW champion. He was a guy with the size and look Vince would want who wrestles – a hardcore style. He's doing planchas and frog splashes and suicide dives. And like you could hit him with a chair a hundred times and he wouldn't blink. Like that's, he came from FMW. So he had that credibility. Like he was a perfect fit for that promotion. And he has just come off of a run as their top guy, arguably because Rob Van Dam wasn't in the heavyweight division. And I think, I assume that, Paul was always building to that match, probably. And that would have been fantastic. Right. But so, like, he's coming off of that. He gets signed by WCW. Yeah. 
you have the potential to have your top heel right here. Yep. This She's guy like is a opponent for Goldberg or Hogan or yeah. Nash. Like, finally, there's a guy you pulled off the Indies who is big enough and threatening enough and a good enough talker to be a main eventer now. And they initially do give him the career killer gimmick, which is a good gimmick. Yes. But then now, for some reason, his gimmick is he likes to have sex with large women. Well, like, he enters into this and just forever feud with Scott Steiner over nothing. Just because they're both big dudes, I guess. And it never goes anywhere. And it's like they're pushing so many people that they're not focusing on pushing any one person. That's why nobody gets over during this time at all. Except Norman Smiley. Later this year, Awesome will become that 70s guy, Mike Awesome, which actually got kind of over. I mean, that's that's honestly, if it weren't him, it would be a cool gimmick. Yeah, that would be a fun gimmick for somebody random. But like, but this is a main event guy. Yeah, there are only like five real missed opportunities during this period. And it's not making Booker the champion sooner. It's not doing more with Lance Storm when he had him hot. It's Mike Awesome. There aren't that many things that they had that could have gone right. But the, the, Mike Awesome was one of them. And then in early 2001, he joins Team Canada. Yep. <laughs> uh, they fight in the crowd. So this match is Scott Steiner defending the U.S. title against Mike Awesome. Um they fight into the crowd. They fight back in the ring. Steiner hits a super belly-to-belly suplex. Awesome hits an elbow drop off the apron. Uh, awesome hits Steiner with a chair. Uh, the commentary, based on the commentary, it seems like there's no longer disqualifications or countouts in WCW. Like, just every match as anything goes. Except for the one move that is so dangerous, so horrifying, so absolutely man-worthy <laughs> that Ernest the Cat Miller has had to ban it from existence. The and Steiner, what's that move? A Steiner fucking recliner. So devastating. It's a camel clutch, people. The Rusev fucking finisher is banned from WCW. Awesome. Hits a slingshot splash into the ring, then a flying clothesline off the top rope. Uh, the cat now comes down the ramp. Steiner makes his comeback, hits a belly-to-belly suplex. He sets up for the Steiner recliner. Cat tells him not to do it. Uh, the move was banned after Steiner put it on Vince Russo and injured him. Steiner goes for a tiger bomb, but Awesome gets out with a low blow. Awesome bomb gets two. Frog splash gets two. Awesome sets up for another power bomb, and Steiner fights out. Ref gets bumped. The cat comes in. He goes for a super kick, but he hits awesome. We get a belly-to-belly suplex on the cat. Awesome kicks out of a pin at two. Steiner hits yet another belly-to-belly suplex. Once again, sets up for the Steiner recliner. Cat says Steiner is stripped of his title if he uses the hold. He puts it on anyway. Cat calls for the bell. Steiner then... Beats up the cat and hits Awesome with a huge T-bone suplex. Thought that was a good big man match. The finish was you know, some silly nonsense, but, you know. Yeah, these guys had good chemistry. They just never really got to go anywhere with it. Is the cat the most ineffectual general manager in history? And that's saying something. Pretty bad, yeah. Nobody listens to him. He gets beaten up no less than five times on this show. All right. Next up, we've got maybe the silliest horse shit on this entire show. 
It's the graveyard match between the demon and Vampiro. Oh my god. So the match starts in a graveyard, but they have to fight back to the ring in order to win. Wait, have we ever explained who the demon is and what the demon is? Nope. Okay. The demon is an attempt to... I don't even know what it's an attempt to do. It's the kiss demon is what it is. It's an attempt to cross-brand with the band Kiss in the year 2000. Dude, Kiss was over in 2000. I... Are you being serious? Because I don't know if you're being serious. I'm not. I, I'm not being serious. I mean, Detroit <laughs> Rock City had come out around around this time. That movie was kind of successful. But it's just so funny, like how out of date that is. It's like, hey, let's do something with Kiss. They're yeah. super hot. It's 100 percent just like Eric Bischoff is a fan of Kiss. Like Eric Bischoff grew up in Detroit. Like right. Kiss was hot in Detroit. Like Eric Bischoff likes Kiss. So Eric Bischoff spent a shitload of money to get KISS to perform on Nitro. It was the main event of the show, and it did, like, literally the worst rating in Nitro history. Because who the fuck is going to stick around for a KISS concert? Yes. And the demon is Dale Torborg. Yes. Former Major League Baseball player. That's correct. And he would go on to be kind of a mainstay in TNA for a number of years. And that's pretty much all you can really say about him other than he was the Kiss Demon. I mean, I can't point out enough how much TNA was just a continuation of 2000 WCW. Absolutely was, in every conceivable way. But yeah, so, he's the Demon. So they're treating him like he's like got demonic powers or he's part of that whole deal. Despite the fact that he's not, he's, he's a Kiss replica guy. He just looks like Gene Simmons. That's the idea. So a guy who looks like Gene Simmons from 80s era kiss is feuding with vampiro in a graveyard let's just yep. go from there <laughs> so demon is managed by asia who is a you know female bodybuilder and a blatant ripoff of china yep vampiro jumps out of a tree onto the demon we can barely see what's going on here it's really dark in this graveyard yeah, it's so dark this is not a sound stage this is an actual graveyard yes like they've they literally got, do you think they got permits to shoot here? I mean, I seriously doubt it. <laughs> it's went in there at night and shot this shit. Like I wonder too if like they just came up on they went to a graveyard like, all right, let's play in a match on the fly. Or if they were like, we gotta find a graveyard with a lake. It's super important. <laughs> they punch each other, demon knocks Vampiro into a grave. They both fight in the grave. Uh, Vampiro leaves Demon in the grave and drags Asia away. Uh, Demon recovers. He tries to find Vampiro in what I thought was the only good spot in the match. Vampiro pops out of a pond, and they fight in the water. That was pretty awesome. He just, like, grabs him from underneath the water like a horror movie. I guess I didn't hate this that much. It was pretty awesome, man. (laughs) You know, if The Undertaker and Kane or The Undertaker and Mankind had done this, I think we would have thought it was cool. And honestly, like, I love Vampiro from this period. Yeah, I, I, I really one of the few good things they had going for them. He's super cool and he's super creepy. And, like, this, this doesn't have, like, the sort of, like, ridiculous, like, 
ponderousness to it that like if the undertaker had been part of it it would have where you have to take it seriously yeah it just felt like vampiro was fucking with everybody <laughs> and that was sort of his gift is he was just like the punk rock demon <laughs> Vampiro once again runs away with Asia. This time he pops out of a casket and attacks the demon. He then crushes a tombstone on demon's head and throws him into a casket and pushes the casket into a grave. And that is, for all intents and purposes, the end of this match. Yep. And the end of the demon, really. Better than the House of Horrors match? 10,000 fucking times better. If only for the pawn. Mean Gene then interviews Shane Douglas, who guarantees a victory over Buff Bagwell tonight. Then we've got a match between Shane Douglas and Buff Bagwell. Who do you think the face was here? These are two of the most unlikable characters in wrestling. I mean, the face is Buff Bagwell, but I just can't form my mouth around those words. That's pretty wretched. If they really wanted him to be liked, they should have put his music back to the American Males theme. I do like the American Males thing. It's so good. It's the best. Uh, they fight on the floor. A chair comes out. Douglas punches the chair into Bagwell's face. For some reason, they are exclusively calling Douglas franchise. I don't know. I'm not really sure. Like, He will keep basically the same music, the same nickname, the same look for like Shitty 25 years. Yeah. And it, it sucks. Like, that's not a great name. That's not a great look. It's not great music. He's just obsessed with it. I think I've buried Shane Douglas before on this podcast, and I think he pretty much deserves to be buried. Shane Douglas... Never has anybody gotten more hype for being less good than Shane Douglas. It was just such an example of how anything that was, like, quote-unquote edgy in the 90s was cool. It was basically just like, oh... He swears a lot, and he talks shit about like Ric Flair and Shawn Michaels, so he has to be cool. And he had his moments, like his role in ECW as the guy who wrestles like Ric Flair but disparages him all the time. Like it, it works, and he has a genuinely iconic moment in wrestling history to his name. So that's cool. But by the time you get here, he just sucks. <laughs> Corey Wilson comes down to the ring. She slaps Douglas, but then kicks Bagwell in the nuts. Douglas hits his uh, fisherman suplex buster, but Bagwell kicks out. Douglas then gets the win with a chicken wing, chicken wing jawbreaker, and Tori uh, makes out with Douglas after the match. I love that even the announcers were like, well, who the fuck side is she on then? Yeah. It's, it doesn't have to make sense. I mean, it really doesn't. And I mean, Tori is looking great here. Like, I didn't even really realize it was her when I first saw her. Yeah. We then see that Hogan has finally arrived at the building. Mean Gene interviews Jeff Jarrett, who says there's a twist coming like the usual suspects. Uh, yeah. Next up, for the WCW World Heavyweight Championship, we've got Jeff Jarrett defending against Hollywood Hogan. Michael Buffer is in the ring to do the introductions. Jarrett's music plays, but he doesn't come out. (coughs) Russo then comes out. He's wearing a San Francisco Giants jersey, which, according to him, was his way of showing people that this was real because 
he wasn't wearing Yankee gear like he normally did. I don't really understand how that was supposed to communicate that. Why would anyone know that Vince Russo is a San Francisco Giants fan? I guess this is another thing of, like, working the boys, maybe? I guess. I guess. I don't. It doesn't deserve that too much thought put into it. But that, but that's another thing that indicates that this was completely premeditated. Like, what, he just decided, he just had that with him, was like, hey, let's work the boys. Like, why? Everything about this, until Vince Russo opens his mouth for the end of this, everything about this is just so lamely premeditated. Jarrett finally comes out. Hogan comes out, gets a big pop. He's got the black and white Hollywood Hogan gear and his NWO entrance music. So he's back to being Hollywood Hogan after having been Hulk Hogan for a little while in 1999. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, do you think Hollywood Hogan is the better character for him at this point? I mean, I think Red and Yellow is as dead as a character can possibly be until he yeah. comes back to WWE. And they, the fans basically tell him, okay, it's time to be Red and Yellow again. I think it needs that because, like, the black and white Hogan is clearly more over with the fans here than Red and Yellow was when he tried that. Hogan gets on the mic, says he's going to powerbomb Jarrett through the mat for Kevin Nash. Jarrett refuses to get in the ring. He's waiting for direction from Russo. Jarrett then gets in the ring and lays down. Russo throws the belt into the ring. Mark Madden says that we are deviating from the script. Russo walks out. Hogan gets back on the mic. He says, that's why this company's in the damn shape it's in because of bullshit like this. And then Hogan puts his foot on Jarrett and gets the pin. He's the new champion. Tony Schiavone keeps saying this is real life because, of course, the rest of the show has all been fake. Exactly. I hate this stuff. And, like, the announcers are so on top of this that it couldn't be more clear that this is fake. <laughs> like, that this is a storyline, you know? Like, if you want an example of when the announcers really, it is real, just wait until later. Scott Hudson says that's not something they go over with us at the production meeting. Oh, God, this is terrible. It's just so lame. Like it, it just comes off. I've said the word lame so many times in this podcast. I'm going to try a different word. It, it's just so shit. <laughs> it, it just doesn't work. Like if this had actually been a storyline they tried to run with, it would have been utterly heatless. Heatless. The the crowd has no idea what to make of this. No. Like why are people? This is just such a dumb fucking Vince Russo booking trope. Oh, he just lays down for it. Like. We've seen this so many times in WCW at this point. We had the finger poke of doom. We had Halloween Havoc where Hogan laid down. Like, we're tired of this finish. I mean, literally, you look in the front row at the fans, and they're, like, not even looking at the ring. They don't care. They're just looking around, just chilling. It's just, they're just, like, out of this again. Yeah. Like, either A, they just flat don't understand it, or B, who cares? So Hogan leaves with the belt backstage. You know, Hogan and Bischoff acted really pissed off. They, you know, I guess we see Hogan leaving later on. Like, we get a shot of Hogan and his son, like, walking away backstage. Um, but 
Hogan and Bischoff leave, get in the limo, like drive to the airport and fly back to Hogan's place on his jet. They have no idea about what happens next, allegedly, until they like, you know, the plane lands, they turn their cell phones back on and they've got a bunch of voicemails. Which is probably true because... But, like, I don't really understand why they had to, like, hop in the limo and drive away. I had always thought... Gotta work the boys. I had always thought that they showed that on TV. And all they show is, like, Hogan walking by as Vampiro's on his way to the ring, which is random. Pretty sad. But, like, they should have just shown him getting in his car and driving away or something then. I don't know. I don't don't care. Yeah, it's completely irrelevant. I don't even want to try to, like, fantasy book a way this could have worked because there isn't one. There's no way to salvage this. It's a stupid idea. Vampiro comes out and gets in the ring. I think he wins the match by doing that. Druids wearing sting masks come out carrying a casket. A guy in a sting mask pops out of the casket and hits Vampiro with a bat. The lights go out and that guy disappears. According to the Observer, it was actually Chris Harris wearing the sting mask. Oh, really? Yeah, that's random. That's interesting. Too bad he couldn't take off the Sting mask to reveal it was actually Sting. <laughs> you know Russo's got this idea in his head right now. Uh, he won't pay it off for like another ten years. Um, mean Gene then interviews Goldberg. He says he's going to beat Nash all over the ring tonight and then rip up Scott Hall's contract right in front of his face. This is weird because he's already eaten the first page of Scott Hall's contract <laughs> on television. Why would you eat a contract? This is, like, if you've never seen this, people, there's a moment where Goldberg just rips the front page off of the contract and shoves it in his mouth and just <laughs> chews on it while staring at the camera for like 10 seconds. Just it's like, what would possess you to do this? Just He thinks he's owning Nash and he's owning himself so hard. So hard. Oh, God. Vince Russo comes out. You know, he looks all sullen. Hudson says, that's not Vince Russo the character. That's Vince Russo the boss. Fuck this shit. Uh, gross. I just, I actually like, like, there's good work shoots and bad work shoots. Yeah. Like, you know, CM Punk the walking out. That was a great work shoot. Like, The Cena Reigns promos where they kind of shot on each other. Those were great. Rock and Cena is another great. Cena's great at this. Cena's amazing. I like blurring the lines of reality and fiction. But when you're just outright admitting, oh, this whole show is fictional, but this is what's real. Like, it just takes you so much out of the moment. Yes. And nobody, like, again, people watching this, I don't think they really get what we're supposed to think here. I mean, I don't know what we're supposed to think here. Like, it's not... I guess it's one of those things where, like, tune in on Nitro to see what the fuck this shit is all about, and then we never get an answer. So Russo proceeds to do a promo. He says he's just here to tell it like it is. Three weeks ago, he left WCW. Uh, From the time he got here, all he had to do was deal with Bullshit politics backstage, but he agreed to come back for 
the guys who bust their asses for WCW. You know, Booker T, Jarrett, the Filthy Animals, MIA, he says. Hogan doesn't give a shit about the company or the fans. Says Hogan is a goddamn politician. Says Hogan played his creative control card tonight. Said he wanted to win the title. Said he wanted to beat Jeff Jarrett in the middle of the ring, even though it was bullshit. Uh, Russo swears you'll never see Hogan again. Calls him a piece of shit. He says Hogan can keep his WCW title. The real belt is going to be decided tonight between the two guys who deserve to fight for it, Jeff Jarrett and Booker T. He then says Hogan is a big, bald son of a bitch and tells him to kiss his ass. It's a pretty hot, I mean, like, it gets no reaction, but, like, it's a, you know, there's, that's a hot promo. Like, there's some real digs in there. Russo goes in. Yeah, like, all in here. Takes every shot he can at Hogan. You do not call Hulk Hogan ball. You just don't do that. All you need to know about this promo is when the camera flips back to the announcers and Tony Schiavone's just looking at the ring like, what? (laughs) Wait, hold on. That's not good. So, you, I mean, I think legitimately, yeah, the announcers probably really didn't know what was coming here. Yeah, and like... At least had no idea it was going to go this far. And Mark Madden and Scott Hudson are like, they're literally like trying to carry water for it. Like, yeah, that's the boss. What he says goes. Because they know the storyline. They know what it was supposed to have been. But Shivani is not doing that. Shivani is just like, uh, yeah. Uh, fuck. That's literally. Thinking, Why the fuck did I leave the WWF? Yes, you can literally see on Shivani's face like, <laughs> this is going to go up in flames. Oh I know it. This what, is am I, what am I doing here? He's been around long enough that he understands a fucking trailer fire when he sees one. He's thinking time to start polishing that resume up. Which he, yeah, I'm just like, oh, I wonder if uh, the Braves are playing soon. Yeah. Oh, Jesus. They do more this is real life shit. Shivani says that is what we call a shoot. Oh, God. Yikes. And the show goes on after this. Uh, we got Goldberg against Kevin Nash. This is a huge match. I mean, so we covered, they did their Starcade rematch at Spring Stampede 99. We did a show on that, but this is still big. This is still like the only guy who's ever really beaten Goldberg. And it feels kind of big because like, even though this is all kind of ridiculous surrounding it, Nash is over, man. He really is. And he looks like a, like, look, if you haven't seen Kevin Nash during this era in a while, just tilt on one of his matches because he looks like the coolest man on the fucking planet. Yeah. Now, like, I, people underrate what a big star Nash was. Yes. Like, he was, when he, I'll just say this, when he beat Goldberg, he was more over than Goldberg was. Absolutely. Like, he outpopped Goldberg in that match. And, and that's why they're trying to do the Steiner recliner thing with Steiner, because banning the powerbomb got over so hugely. Yeah. Like, that move was as over as, like, the stunner was for, like, a brief yeah. period. So Goldberg turned heel with the Great American Bash, saying the fans didn't appreciate him. You know, fame has gone to his head, that kind of thing. Russo gave Scott Hall's contract to Goldberg. He says Nash can fight Goldberg for it at the Bash at the Beach. 
I love that they treat it as if like literally the physical contract is what matters. Like if it gets torn up, Scott Hall is fired. Right. Like Scott Hall's just like chilling at home, like, man, I hope my contract doesn't get eaten. Yeah. Otherwise, it's very important that you keep those physical paper contracts, you know, in a very secure, safe place. Yes. Even in two thousand, there's electric copies of that shit. You don't gotta worry about that. So Goldberg against the one man who's ever beaten him for the contract of the guy who cost Goldberg that match. Uh, they actually do like the tracking entrance for Nash here. So they shoot him walking to the ring. Yes. He uh, asks Steiner for help, but Steiner is too busy getting busy with Medeja. Yeah, literally Scott Steiner, they show Scott Steiner in a corner and like <laughs> they literally don't show her. So like the the idea is that like Medeja, Medeja is like literally blowing Scott Steiner in a corner of the back hallway right now. And Kevin Nash is like, hey, uh, come on, we got to go, you know, come back me up. And Steiner's like, no, I'm fucking busy. Oh, sorry, bro. <laughs> He's like, come on, it's for the contract. He's just like, I'm not worried about no contract. Uh, Goldberg gets his typical big entrance. Uh, Nash is in control early with big strikes. Goldberg hits a kick that takes Nash down. Nash hits a choke slam, but that only gets two. Steiner finally comes down the ramp. Uh, Goldberg charges. Nash gets him with a boot. Sidewalk slam. Goldberg goes for the spear, but Nash dodges, and Goldberg hits the turnbuckle. Steiner then cheap shots Nash, and we've got a swerve. Goldberg with the spear, the jackhammer, one, two, three. I don't know. I don't. I mean, I, I I won't claim to have any idea like how they explain this because I don't remember. If this were a better done feud, this could have been at least semi hot. Like maybe if it was still while like the wolf pack was a real thing and not just in shambles the way it was here. It doesn't really mean anything. It's interesting. I would have liked it if Steiner had like used the cattle prod on Nash to be like a total reversal of what oh. happened. That would have been interesting. Yeah, but I mean, look, I'm just trying to polish a turd here. Uh, Steiner puts the Steiner recliner on Nash. Uh, this leads to the infamous Goldberg versus Nash versus Steiner triple threat match the next month at New Blood Rising. That's the one where Goldberg refuses to do the job and, like, walks out of the match. Yep, he sure does. Again, like... Maybe these work shoot storylines would be effective if they didn't book them all the time. All the time. You can do this kind of thing occasionally and it'll really work, but if you do it every month, nobody cares. Uh. If this is if this was real, Goldberg would walk out rather than take the power bomb. That would have been good. <laughs> mean Gene interviews Booker T. Says he's going to win the gold tonight. We've got our main event for the WCW World Heavyweight Championship. Jeff Jarrett defends against Booker T. I think. Jarrett's still champion. They're just not acknowledging that he lost the title to Hogan. Oh. <laughs> uh, again... Crowd is really hot for Booker. You can only imagine where he'd be if they had actually given him, you know, a proper push to lead the bus. I mean, 
we've talked about it ad nauseum at this point. It, it just makes me sad every time we bring it up because it's such a good, it's such an obvious thing. But of course, we have hindsight. And of course, they were blinded by Goldberg. And like the injury to Booker T couldn't have come at a worse time. And like, I, I get why it didn't work. It's just, man, that could have changed a lot of stuff. Well, it's also. When Booker came back in 99, they were kind of floundering and searching for a direction. So how about you build up his return really big and push him to the moon when he comes back? The true born son of WCW, yeah. the successor to Sting's legacy. Yeah. Give us six weeks of packages of him rehabbing before he comes back to the ring. God, that would have been awesome. So they start out scientifically. Booker hits a drop kick. Jarrett bails. Uh, they go to the floor and they fight into the crowd. There's basically no security, so people are just swarming all over them. Like, you can't really even see them in the crowd. Right. Um, they come back to ringside. Uh, Jarrett pile drives Booker on the announce table. Uh, they go into the ring. Jarrett slows things down with a chin lock. Booker fights out, makes a short comeback, but Jarrett cuts him off and gets him in the figure four. Booker turns it over. Uh, Booker makes a comeback, hits the axe kick, then a big spine buster for a two count. The ref gets bumped. Jarrett brings the title into the ring. Booker gets it away from him and knocks him out with it. We get a really slow count for a two. Jarrett then brings a chair into the ring. He gets slammed into it in the corner. Booker rolls him up for another two count. Jarrett hits the referee with the stroke, kicks Booker in the nuts. Jarrett brings his guitar into the ring. He goes to the top rope, comes off the top rope, swinging the guitar, but he gets caught. Booker hits him with the bookend. New referee comes in. One, two, three. Booker wins the title to a pretty impressive pop. I mean, it's a genuinely great moment. Yeah. Let's be honest. Like it's it's great. Like it, it's like the one shining light during this entire last year of the company's existence. Yeah, this is. I'd say this probably is really the last good. I mean, other than just like you know the the Nitro finale with Sting and Flair was you know a good send off for the company. But yeah, I mean, other than that, this is the last good WCW moment. Right. Um. You know, again, I just go back to, like, they'd really built to this. This could have been something special. Instead, you know, people tuned in on Nitro the next night, and they were like, wait, what the hell? Booker T's the champion? I mean, and it's that's the kind of thing. That's what this could have been if you had just erased all of the bullshit. And it just made this, like, a match between Jeff Jarrett and Booker T or something. This could have been that's what we're talking about the next day is this awesome moment for Booker T who yeah. finally deserves it. Instead, you're talking about this nonsense, and you have to talk about it ad nauseum for weeks. So Booker gets lost, and then by, before you know it, he's lost it four times. Yeah, somehow Booker T ends up being a five-time WCW champion. Four and times? Like, five-time? Five, yeah. I think five-time may not have happened until he, won, he traded it with Angle during the invasion. I think that's when he got to five. Right. So I think it's four times he has it. In the next six months. But that's like, fucking ridiculous. I mean, yeah. Like, I don't remember how many times they changed this title in 2000, but it might have been 20. Yep. 
yeah, like they just bury this title bad. Um, so I guess that's a wrap for Bash at the Beach 2000. I mean, an interesting and bizarre night in wrestling history. I feel like these Bash at the Beach shows we've done pretty perfectly capture the rise and fall of WCW. I, I, I'm so happy that we've gone through this because I, I really feel like more than ever before, I, I truly understand the scope of WCW's incredibly un, unprecedented success and ridiculously precipitous failure, like in such a quick period of time. Like just watching these shows in like rapid succession is mind numbing because it just feels like a different universe, like that it could change this much. And then you look at like modern WWE where like things haven't changed this much in 20 years. Like it, it doesn't even make sense. Yeah. It's amazing how fast they fell off. But when you watch this garbage on this show, oh, yeah. you can understand how they killed this company in a span of two years. Let the record show that I had started watching wrestling again at this point. Like I had started watching back in, I believe, May of 2000. I had no concept that WCW was a thing that existed. No, there's no reason to. It didn't matter. If I had any concept of it, it was as a thing that was already over and done with. So by the time the invasion happened, that's why I told those stories about me being like, wait, who the fuck? What, what's happening? Because WCW wasn't even on the radar anymore at this point. Like Nobody was talking about it. There were no shirts. Nobody was talking about Goldberg at high school. It just wasn't a thing anymore. Yeah. They just run this straight into the ground. Like almost two years to the day after that amazing crowd in the Georgia Dome, Hogan and Goldberg doing that record TV rating, and then doing that massive buy rate for Bash at the Beach and having all that mainstream publicity. This company is dead. Man, that's crazy. Yeah, it's insane. And, like, we've kind of skipped through a bunch of parts of the story, and, like, we'll fill that in on some future podcasts. I'm looking forward to covering, you know, more of the fall of WCW because it's really one of the great tragedies in wrestling history. Like, this was awful for wrestling that WCW died. Absolutely. Yeah. So next week, we're going to do something I'm looking forward to. Fully loaded 2000. Yes. Like it's a show that's very near and dear to both of our hearts. Um, this is the show that brought me back. Yeah. It's, um, you know, kind of the WWF sudden youth movement as we get main event matches for Chris Benoit, Chris Jericho, and Kurt Angle. Like this is kind of unprecedented in WWE history. Like they never really do another show like this. And that's probably why this one's so fondly remembered. We're just like, here's all of our established stars. Here's all the next generation of stars. And almost all that next generation of stars don't really become the next generation of stars. No, but just for this one beautiful moment, it's like, man, here's the top guys. Here's the next top guys. What a beautiful moment. Oh, so plenty to talk about there. We've got The Rock defending the WWF title against Chris Benoit. We've got Triple H against Chris Jericho in a last man standing match. We've got The Undertaker against Kurt Angle. We've got Rikishi jumping off of a steel cage. Fuck, that's such a great moment. And Commissioner Mick Foley. Oh, don't, isn't this, uh, was Perry Saturn Moppy Perry Saturn at this point? No, he's still got Terry backing him up. Moppy Damn. comes soon after this. God, I, I can't wait till we do a show where we can talk about Moppy. 
Oh, all that and more next week on Fully Loaded. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again next week.